the privatization of everything in America. How serious an assault is it on our democratic republic surviving? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Proof. Actual results. Matter to some, though not all Americans. You know there are those who believe in some fanciful notion of a free market that it and it alone is sufficient to address all things that are needed for a thriving and fair economy. And that a profit-driven process of competition that generates innovation and knowledge is all we need to maintain what America's founders had in mind what they spoke of the common good. Uh, if it were only that simple. In the new book, The Privatization of Everything, subtitled How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back, co-author Donald Cohen, our guest today, the founder of In the Public Interest, chronicles the efforts to turn our public goods into private profit centers. Though many believe privatizing everything is the essence of freedom in America, Counter to that, there is proof with actual results that government intervention is not only consistent with their founders' intent, but is essential to the vital foundation of America, the common good. When did this massive rush to privatize everything kick off? How constricted are we now relative to implementing President Biden's long-needed Build Back Better program, which does directly improve the common good, have the ruling plutocrats become so entrenched that we, the non-plutocrats, the people, have become powerless? Our guest today, Donald Cohen, says the hopeful news is that we gave the private interests their power, and we can, therefore, take it back. Donald Cohen, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic Introduction. Thank you. I try. Donald Cohen is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national research and policy center that studies public goods and services. His opinion pieces and articles have appeared in the New York Times, Reuters, L.A. Times, and the New Republic, among others. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And given the political and economic context of the 2020s, what prompted you to write this book at this point in time? Well, there's a couple of things. One is, uh, one would be, you know, the work I've been doing over the past ten or fifteen years, or actually longer. Um, you know, about looking at how government works, looking at privatization of all kinds of things. How, how increasingly things are getting outsourced and privatized, everything from roads to prisons and everything in between. And then, and then, you know, seeing there was a bigger picture there. There was something bigger going on, rather than just, uh, you know, one thing at a time. And that, and that is, you know, to, to the title of your, you know, to the theme of the show, that's, that it was fundamentally an assault on democracy in a variety of ways. We can talk about that. 
And then once I thought about that and we, and we realized that, um, you know, there's probably very few more important things going on in America than the assault on democracy writ large. So felt that there was an urgency now. Um, you know, there's certainly, you know, voter suppression and gerrymandering and other things uh, that are happening. But there's something that, you know, but there are other there are other aspects of the of the assault on democracy that it's important for all of us to understand. Yeah, and I don't think it it it, it very often is actually the whole threat of privatization of everything. It's it's not something we think about in terms of its effect on democracy. But hey, that's what this show is about. And let's let's define terms. It's always important to do that. What do we mean by the term public good? Where where does that show itself in our lives? How will we see it? Well, where there's a few different places where where economists see it uh, in the textbooks is they have a very um, narrow and very specific definition of public goods, and they are things that you can't uh, avoid someone using, or and things that if one person uses it. And it doesn't prevent another person from using it. I'll give you an example to make it simple. A streetlight. You can't stop someone from using the streetlight. And if you use the streetlight to, you know, to read a map, you can't, you know, someone else can use the same light to read the same map. So what that fundamentally means is that, and everything, and that's, you know, that's the, and everything else is, you know, you leave to the market. So what that means is that, you you know, critically important, you know, life's essentials are left to the market to decide what we all get and what, what some of us get. Wow. Our definition is different. We believe that the public goods can be determined democratically, that we can decide as a people through democratic processes what we believe every person you know, in the country should have and should have equally, like health care. Or the ability to, you know, to to travel, to to move around, you know, transportation, or the ability to go to college. So, in our view, in the in the way we describe it throughout the book, is <clears throat> these are the things that uh, we we all need, and that we can only do if we do them together. So, what I mean by that is, you can only make sure once you decide, say, that everyone should have health care, and good, and it shouldn't depend on how much money you have. Mm-hmm. Then the only way to do that is to do it with public involvement. That can be delivered in different ways, but the only way to do it is with government involvement. Same is true with getting a letter across, the, you know, to every house and every building in the in the United States, no matter where it is, at the same cost. Right. Um, you can only do that with government involvement. So that's that's the, that's the general definition. Well, absolutely, and you know, as you think about it, as regular listeners to this show. Uh, will note I am obsessed with the First World War, and all the all the countries, all the belligerents, had just a very few people deciding to make the war. All men, of course. I'm talking under ten people in each country. There was no democratic decision making whatsoever. It was a policy that, boy, it benefited the private interests. That's for sure. And mm-hmm. look what it did: the idea of privatizing foreign policy. That's right. That's been going on. For yeah. A long well, time. there's a lot of that. We saw that increasingly in you know in our pre in you know in Afghanistan and Iraq, the increasing you know use of military contractors versus you know troops or uh, you know that I mean that just on the ground the the, the, the carrying out a war, you know which 
you know, what you're talking about is who's benef- who benefits from going to war. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, you know, there's two different things. And, you know, I think that raises sort of a larger theme, and that is the concentration of power, economic power and wealth, it, it is a, a threat to all of us. Um, because, you know, power is the ability to make something happen. And if, they, you know, if the plutocrats, as you described, as you say, have the power to determine these things, then that means we don't. Right. Well, so privatization, I mean, we, we kind of defined uh, the common good. For, for our discussion here, how might you define privatization? Well, I have a, again, a very specific definition, and that is private control over public goods. So that means, you know, we, we send off a, um, a private company or investors get control of our road. They have some level of control, and we can describe how they get that you know, later, but they get some control over the, that road. Um, it also means, you know, if you don't have the public resources to provide an essential public service for somebody like health care or, you know, or college or whatever, then we're left on our own in the market to, you know, to get it on our own. So we think that's privatization as well. It's handing over control as well. And then the other way I look at it is um, kind of deregulation or underregulation or failing uh-huh. to enforce health and safety rules. Because, you know, the example I like to use is if there's a polluter, you know, a manufacturer making something and polluting the air next to a school, and that polluter, that manufacturer is underregulated or not monitored for what mm-hmm. they're supposed to be doing. And they have some level of control over the lives of those kids, over the health of those kids in that school. So it's a, it's a pretty broad definition that we have. It's again, it's about control and who gets to determine, you know, whether we survive and thrive, as as you say. Yeah, and com- private control over public good. Uh, yeah, I I wonder if uh, people who call themselves conservative would be comfortable with that. Apparently, some would. I mean. There are people who call themselves conservatives and and defend privatization by by saying that the private sector is always more efficient and innovative. What's your response to that? Well, I'll say two responses in terms of the two things you just said. One is there's a difference between control and there's two different issues there actually. So control doesn't mean you're doing it right. Like you know, food. You know, we don't. The government doesn't make our food, but they make sure it's safe. So that's that's the control aspect. Uh-huh. When you get to the, the, so that's the key. So that way, maybe there are conservatives who would see that. To the point of efficiency, because um, that's not just how you operate it, how you deliver the service or the good or what have you. So I'll say a few things about that. So first off, if it's important to understand what efficiency is in the simple simplest terms, efficiency, as I describe it, is you know more. Actually, less money and effort in to get more out. Okay, so uh-huh. just, you know you're doing you know you get more for less. That's what, you know it's efficiency. It's yeah. natural. Yeah. So the first question we ask is okay. So that means you're going to spend less money on something. What are you going to spend less money on? Now it very may, well may be um, they're going to do something clever, creative, innovative, and all that that you know makes it you know more productive. That's possible. Um, but mostly, it's they're going to spend less. They're going to spend less money on some pretty basic things because it's it's real stuff that gets you know that makes things happen. Um, the number of workers, the wages and benefits of the workers, the quality of the equipment or the you know or the mm. material. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's real things you'll spend less money on. So it's really important to understand that. 
Now, it may make sense, it may not, but let's get to the real question. Because the other thing, of course, you have to remember is that when you privatize a, a service, you know, a prison to, to, to mm-hmm. Corrections Corporation of America, then some of the money, and it's all government funds, it's all public funds that pays for it, right. some of those, those dollars have to be, are used for returns to investors, um, executive compensations are usually pretty high with some of these uh, large corporations, uh, lobbying costs, campaign costs, debt service to, when they acquire a different company. So there's a whole bunch of money that's being extracted from delivery of the service. Right? Just to say with private prison, you know, workers are paid less. I mean, and that creates other problems, more violent prisons, you know, lots of turnover and all sorts of things. You know, uh, there was prisons in the Midwest that was you know, had outsourced their food, you know, their meals, um, and it, you know, the quality of the food was quite terrible. They yeah. found maggots in the food. Yeah, uh, you may have remembered that. And so, it's a you know, it's it, things are pretty simple. You know, things cost money, and so you're going to spend less. Ask, tell us what you're going to take away money. Tell us how much, <laughs> um, and so that we can decide whether that's the right thing to do. The flip side of this thing is it's also sort of untrue. There's lots of government efficiency. There's lots of government inefficiency. Yes. There's lots of public-private efficiency and lots of private inefficiency. It's about organization and management. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, can, I mean, everybody has efficiencies and, and inefficiencies. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, kind of a subtle threat to our democracy that is exceedingly powerful. The book is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. And our guest is uh, co-author Donald Cohen, no relation that I know of. And, you know, we are in a, a an era now which can't help but remind people who have some knowledge of American history of the Gilded Age, you know, when there was a in the late 1890s, there were a few people with a tremendous amount of money and power and everybody else. After that came the progressive era. That came on the heels of the last Gilded Age. Part of that was taking on the intense power and orthodoxy of the captains of industry with government-mandated regulations. And many of us, I hope all of us, have read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle about the dangers of unchecked, uncontrolled food processing from that era. We got the 1906 Food and Drug Acts, the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, 1958 Food Additives Amendment. I wonder what effects would have been, what the effects would have been on the public good without those government mandates had private industry remained in total charge. Are we measurably safer with such oversight of corporate-sponsored or is corporate-sponsored inspection, should that be enough? Yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's a really important law that got passed. And yes, our food is safer overall. There's no question that without okay. government rules, it would not have been. I mean, the, the, the Food Safety Act and the Meat Safety Act, there were two at the same time in 1906. They were vigorously opposed by industry. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, some of, it was, some of the features of the law were simply labeling. 
you know, to tell us how old the meat is in this can or what <laughs> have you. And, you know, their responses are, worth, you know, actually we have some of the, have some of the quotes. It's like, we would, ne- you know, what's wrong with meat, you know, that's old in a can? There's nothing wrong with it, so why would you need a regulation? And, and we as businesses wouldn't do that because the free market would make sure that we, you know, cleaned up our act if it really was a problem. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they vigorously opposed all of those uh, all those laws. So there's no question. I mean, and and virtually every health and safety law that we now take for granted. You know, I'm I'm going a little off point here, but the the labels on the you know the nutrition labels on the side of the, you know our cereal box. Sure. Again, vigorously fought by industry. We don't want to tell. We don't want to tell you what's in it. Um. So there, there's really no, no question that government action has made a real difference. To your point of today. Um, the, the uh, food processing, chicken processing, and you know meat processing, and other things like peanut processing and lettuce and others, you know, mass production of some of our foodstuffs um, is increasingly, in, you know, it's under the responsibility of the, the inspection is under the responsibility of the FIS FSIS Food Safety Inspection Service, which is part of the FDA. Um, they have limited staff, so. Many processors will then hire their own auditors to make sure they can get some sort of stamp of approval that, uh, you know, food safety auditors they can put on their uh, on the side of their box or what have you. But those food process, those uh, private auditors are paid for by the company, and so their, you know, their ability to get their next job depends on producing a report that is, you know, that, that's relatively favorable. And there are examples, and there's a few in the book and, and many that people can Google, of you know, the private sector, you know, the private company who was, you know, conflicted because their boss is the one paying them, uh, you know, gives a stamp of approval and then there's a, an outbreak of salmonella mm. from that plant. So that happens. You know, over the last, I guess it's, I think, starting during the Obama administration, the, you know, now the FDA and the FSAS allows companies to um, choose to do voluntary inspection and have, you know, have instill FSAS fewer FSIS inspectors on the line. So it used to be there were three, now there's one at the end of the line. So the people doing the inspecting are the people, are the workers on the assembly line. And again, and, you know, there's chickens going by at 150 yeah, you know, really? chickens a minute. You know, they're going by fast. So one is you have to, you know, it's a hard job. You have to catch stuff. You have to be trained to catch stuff. And your job depends on... Not catching too much stuff. Yeah. So you know, so you know, again, I'm not. We don't suggest that you know the government take over the production of chickens, right. um, but we do want to make sure that our food is safe, and we do need that. And if you you know if you pass a law, and you don't have cops on the beat, bad things are going to happen. Whether it's corruption or greed or incompetence or just a mistake. You gotta, you know, you gotta watch, um, and every and all of us know that. You know, you hire someone to paint your house or do something. We all know that if you don't watch, you know, just things happen. Bad things happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, d- depending on the kindness of strangers uh, has has been problematic over the years, and uh, you know, to, to for the. Meat producers, etc., to say, "Oh yeah, trust us; it's safe." You know, we we know uh, uh, human nature, and if you can get away with stuff, you'll get away with stuff. And privatization is 
as far as I know, most associated with, with Ronald Reagan, the presidency of Ronald Reagan. But both parties do tend to kowtow to the sources of their campaign dollars. Tell us a bit about Bill Clinton's reform agenda, which was virtually lifted, apparently, from recommendations made by Reagan's Commission on Privatization. Yeah, well, so many people think, as you say, that Reagan really, you know, was the the, the, the initial privatizer. He actually wasn't. He wanted to. He couldn't. He actually ended up not privatizing much. And the people around him and the folks from the Heritage Foundation and the you know, ideologues were frustrated by that. Um, so, um, but then Bill Clinton gets elected as a new Democrat, and he actually, uh, you know, uh, implemented a lot of privatization. Um, the I'll give a couple of examples of, uh, and I, you know, we could speculate on why. I don't think it was just campaign contributions. I thought there, there was an ideological difference. Uh. He, he was a he was a believer in markets. He was a believer in the stuff that you were talking about at the beginning of the call, the yeah. free market. We should, we should unleash market forces because that's you know that that, that was the you know the idea you know the the center of the idea world at that point in time. Yeah. Wow. So Clinton, you know, signed. Uh, you know, he asked Vice President Gore to create to, to lead the National Performance Review, the Gore Commission is referred to, to figure out how to improve government, and that's. Fine. Lots of presidents do that when they get there. And that's a good thing to do. You know, you always have to improve. Um, baked into that was this idea of competition in markets and privatization. It was baked in as an idea. The biggest privatization uh, thing that really opened the floodgates in many ways was welfare reform yes. in 1996, I think, that passed. And it was really the first where, you know, mass, a major public, a piece of our you know, safety net was included in that bill in the Welfare Reform Act. Um, at first, it was, I mean, it was just, it wasn't eligibility, it was just all the other stuff. It has creeped into eligibility over time. But that opened the door to massive privatization. And just an interesting side note, what happened is, you remember, you know, the Cold War ended in, you know, the early 90s, you know, yeah. late 80s, early 90s. And there were massive multinational corporations looking for, you know, their next market, you know, their next market. So then you had EDS and you had Lockheed, Lockheed and you had, you had these big corporations moving into social services. And that was basically made possible by that welfare reform law. Wow. That's really interesting. And the most interesting stuff in history is generally that stuff which isn't particularly well known. But yeah, that... The privatization by uh, Clinton really had a, a big effect, and there's still kind of a, uh, dare I say, a stink around the uh, the Clinton brand of the Democratic Party. They keep on losing again and again and again, but uh, I don't know, somehow, somehow, too many people keep sticking with that. It's a little bit of a, a side issue here, just a personal thing, I suppose. But uh, you, tell, you talk about welfare reform. It seems a great many people, at least in recent years, have bought into the image of lazy, inefficient bureaucracies and that the private sector is more efficient and can deliver the goods better. My recollection is that Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman had a lot to do with reinforcing that image of inefficient, lazy bureaucracies. Do tell. Uh, it wasn't just them. I mean, it was, you know, there was a concerted, multi-sided effort to, um, you know, to attack 
both the idea of government and the institution of government. You know, certain Milton Friedman was an ideologue, but Reagan, you know, there was a whole, a whole bunch of folks that were, you know, Reagan kicked it off publicly when he said, you know, the, um, what is it? The nine most dangerous words in English languages. I'm here. For, I'm from the government. Right, I'm here, here to, to help. help. Right, right, right. And right. there was another one I was just looking at again in one of his uh, inaugural speeches. And so he lifted it up to the national stage. Other people have been, you know, starting that, you know, since throughout the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but there's a concern, you know. I mean, listen, we're in a world of Fox News and, uh, uh, you know. Of a whole, the Koch brothers, you know, I'm sort of fast forwarding to today, um, that are both, and I would say sort of three places that, that this comes from. And then I'll get more to the specific question. One is there are, Milton Friedman was an ideologue. He was a true believer, a libertarian believer, that the government should not be involved in, in a bunch of stuff, in, in a lot of things. I mean, I just found a quote yesterday. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, he did not think the government should be involved in, in educate, public education. Really, that's where he was. But there, and there's a lot of true believers. They really believe in a different, yeah. a different role of government that, you know, we're on our own and we'll get what we pay for and you only get what you pay for. You know, that kind of thing. And, but then there's corporations massive corporations who were organized starting to organize they were organized in the 80s to be a force for privatization there was a there was a, corp, a council created um you know there's a massive amount of money to be made before covid so the numbers are different now governments in america were spending seven trillion dollars a year now it's you know more um and so you're the head of uh corrections corporation of america which is now called Co- Civic, they've changed their name, mm. you know, and there's a hundred billion dollars a year spent in corrections plus more in detention. What are you thinking? You want to get a piece of that, right? right? So that's a real driver, and you can go down the list. Um, and then the others, of course, are you know, the political class, I'll call them, um, strategists and campaigners and and, and um, you know, candidates who you know, who both you know, want to run against government, who run against government because it's good. You know, it's good campaign it's rhetoric. Yeah, it works. Yeah. It's easy, and because you know, there's, um, and want to, you know, they don't like unions, so they think if they can attack government, they can also get rid of the teachers' union or other public sector unions. And then, you know, then of course they got, you know, they have friends in the, um, you know, who have contracts that they want. I'm not sure that's always the most important part, but it's you know, there's always a, there's always a piece of it. So, um, you know. It all depended on turning people away from government, right? right? right. Reagan's, you know, Reagan's, uh, you know, dis- description uh, about welfare was welfare queens, right? Right. Okay. What's that about? What that's about is saying the government serves someone else, not you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's about, and you know, so. He said that, then there's Willie Horton. I mean, you can just sort of, you know, racism throughout is is a used as a wedge here, and we're still seeing that in in tragic ways. And so it's all about turning people away from government. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, government in America, maybe the world, you know, is the most complex institution in civilized history, okay? Even if you and I ran the world, we'd mess up, right? We wouldn't get everything right. It's complicated. So... There's plenty of examples we all have that are very pedestrian, you know. <laughs> uh, 
pothole. Oh my God, the damn city didn't, you know, didn't fix the potholes. You know, the DMV, which actually in California, the DMV is actually quite efficient now. It's oh. great. Um, but, you know, we all go to the DMV. There's plenty of examples to say, you know, uh, you know, government doesn't work because I had a problem. Um, but it's about organization. I mean, I don't know how many times you've been on the phone screaming at a voicemail system for your airline or at your, your, um, you know, your internet service saying, "Give me a representative! Give me a representative!" Right. <laughs> so, uh, it's a, big organizations are complicated. Yes, they are. And and uh, but as H. L. Mencken said, there's a to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. And people, <laughs> people, I think, you know, who support privatization think. Just let let the privates do it. Just simple, simple, simple. The privates yeah. can do it better, and it just it well, doesn't. And it is that is just wrong. Of course, okay. it's, it's totally <laughs> and, wrong. Go ahead. And let me, it, you know, maybe you have, I, you know, I want to getting back to this issue of democracy and incentives. It's how that you know, it's, I, it's my mind. I, I could give an example that kind of cuts right to what's really at the stake here. But that sure work. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'll just, it's just an example that I, I just found just fairly recently, actually. So um, un, public universities now and some universities are now outsourcing their dorms. You know, they're doing public-private partnerships to, you know, to build or to okay. upgrade and to manage and upgrade their dorms. Now, from the university, maybe it's they don't want to be a landlord anymore. They, of course, are told it'll be cheaper. Um, and so, and it's one less headache for the, you know, for the chancellor. So... So there's a company that's done that. Um, they had a contract with a couple of universities, more than this, but these are the couple of examples I saw, Georgia State and uh, Wayne State. And so the universities wanted, and I don't remember, these are usually long-term contracts, these public-private partnerships. The, the universities wanted to start, you know, in COVID, start bringing kids back, you know, um, you know to, to, to school. But they wanted fewer students in the dorm, which makes sense from a health perspective, of course. So let me read, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from the letter that the company sent the dorms, sent, excuse me, the universities. Uh -huh. you know, yeah, that's curious. Legal language was, this was, you know, this was clearly a legal letter. It said, the, as per our agreement, the university does not have the unilateral right under the agreement to institute a policy that would, for example, limit the number of students who could occupy the student housing yeah. or reduce semester housing fees due to a shortened semester for which the oh. concessionaire has a contractual right to receive. <laughs> Having okay. one daughter still in college, yeah, I can relate to that. That's amazing. So, so university responsible for the health of their students yes. at some level. Yeah doesn't have the right because they signed a law a legal right because they signed a long-term contract with this company so when going back to my definition of private control over public goods really? that's private really? control over public goods that is that, remarkable i must say uh and there's so many things to talk about. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about the privatization of everything and what, how it affects us and why uh, it's important to have the common good protected for the common. Uh, and different kinds of government there have been over the years. Uh, one of the 
ones who really understood, I think, way much earlier than everybody else was Franklin Roosevelt. Speaking about the dangers of over-privatization, he had a lot to say. He said they, the private corporations, had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own. I should like to have it said of my first administration that uh, in it the forces of selfishness and of lust of power met their match. I should like to have it said of my second administration that in it these forces have met their master. And he also said, government is a bulwark against greed. The natural resources of this country are a commons, a public trust to be used for the maximum good. This is our president. Government ownership is justified when the private sector fails or when corporations grow so large that local and state regulatory authorities can no longer, in his words, by mere inspection, supervision, and regulation, protect the public interest. Where does this sentiment fit in today? It seems like Biden is trying to do some of that. Your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, and then I want to go back. I'll do that, and I want to go back and disagree with one thing he said, even though it was a massive, it was a powerfully positive statement. Um, I, you know, I think, listen, we're in a very different political environment. You know, power is far more concentrated. You know, back then we just didn't have campaign contributions to say, you know, and it's you know, political spending, both campaign contributions and independent expenditure campaigns and the massive lobbying expenditures. And we're in an, in an idea environment that is, you know, you know, anti-government and then to, you know, post-Trump just playing crazy um, in terms of, you know, anti-science and anti-truth and all of that. So yeah. I, I do think... You know, the Build Back Better plan, whatever it ends up finally being, is an expression that there's a role to play yes. in child care. You know, it shouldn't, child care should not, you know, right now it's a privatized public good, in, right. in my view. Everybody, everybody with kids needs it. Um, and, and so, but we make it, a, but we, we treat it as a commodity where you have to go figure out how to buy it. And, you know, and it's incredibly expensive. I'm sure everybody knows. So... Um, I think you know if we can get you know massive investment in childcare as a, you know part of the social infrastructure, uh-huh. we'll be going a long way to saying you know the government has a role when it's something we all need. Um, so I think you know I hope and you know listen I don't blame him for not getting the full three plus trillion. It's you know he's got to negotiate. It's so the bottom line is yes we have a Congress that is just not where we need him to be. Um, in terms of you know public goods and democracy and sanity, um, the one the one that was, I had heard that quote before. The one thing that caught my attention is when he said, you know, what I can't remember exactly the words, but it's when the market fails, that's when government steps in. And I think about it. There was he said it a little differently, but I think about that a little differently because you hear that a lot. The role of government is when when there's market failure. And I don't agree with that. Uh-huh, I think uh-huh. there are market things and there are public things. And sometimes the market is simply the wrong tool, right? It's not that it failed. It's that it's wrong. It would be like cooking eggs with a, ham- with a hammer. You know, you don't do it. Um, and so because of competition, right, because market is based on competition, right. competition and markets exclude, right? Right. So I think there are things that, like, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation, the, the public things that we all need, there must be public involvement. It's the right tool, and the market's the wrong tool. 
Um, I can let me just give an, a, a little example. Please. I'm sorry. I'm just um, governments. Uh, let me just think here. Uh, secrecy. Com- markets are about secrecy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to tell your competitors stuff. Right. You know. Right. So there's a and there's a lot of examples in the book about you know when you know when something goes from public to private you lose transparency you lose access you know inf- all sorts of information. Um, one example is uh, I'll give on charter schools. It's a little bit different. It's it's you know they're privately operated, publicly funded charter schools. There's a lot of nonprofits, a lot of for profits. Yes. You know, and there's, a, and there's controversy and difference of opinion about charters, sure. which is most people say charters are your forum against them, and the conversation stops. It's really the wrong question. There's good ones and bad ones. It's not the issue. So charter schools are private. It is about the market. The idea behind charter schools and, and school choice is that parents will choose the good schools and the poor schools will just, they'll either improve or fail. Now, that's not a way we should be thinking about schools. We should be, you know, because then you take the resources from the poor schools and make them fail. But they don't, but they're, so they're competing. And a few things happen when they compete. One is, uh, a few, um, in uh, their employee handbooks, we have found a number of these, that uh, uh, teachers uh, have to sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, mm-hmm. about the mm-hmm. charter school's trade secrets. Uh, hmm. Okay. Hmm. What are the trade secrets? Lesson plans, <laughs> curriculum, teaching methods. Um, that's the stuff that ought to be shared. And, by the way, we pay for it, right? Yes. And, Texas. by the way, it was the original idea of charter schools, laboratories of innovation, and then share to we educate all. So the competition limits our ability to educate all kids. You know, the other thing that happens, you know, because again of competition, the, you know, these incentives get baked in. Is, um, you know, some schools will come up with schemes to get rid of the kids. You know, the, the, more, the more expensive kids or the right. kids, the hard to educate kids. Right. So they figure out ways to push them out. Yes. Um, in New York, you know, there was a school principal that the New York Times found that had a quote "got to go" list. And just figure out ways to counsel them out, get them out, figure out how to get them, get them out. And so, those are the incentives baked in. And Whoa, you know, and, and why yeah. do they do that? Because they want to show good test scores so that in the market, people will choose their school. Mm. So it's what like I say. It's just the wrong tool. Yeah, it's a tool that's that's hurting public education. It's it's uh, separating out and dumbing down the schools. It's. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad, and then of course there's and, the... it, does, and it does segregate. I just I'm sorry. Sure, sure, sure. It does, that's the other part of it. What it is? It does. So it's choice. Listen, we we you know it's okay. We choose different food. We choose different phones to buy. But what choice is? It is helping to segregate us and stratify us and separate us. And you know you don't blame any one parent for putting their kid in a charter. It may be a good school. That's not the point. But the more we consider things, you know, you know we're choosing and we're putting things in the market. We're segregating ourselves, and what you know, I believe that's kind of at the core of one of our, of our national problem right now is that we don't interact with people that are different from us, um, or have different views, uh, and I think that's uh, it's at the core of what I believe we have a massive empathy deficit in this country, and the only way to get back to you know, uh, you know, decent public institutions that represent us all is for us to trust one another. And understand one another. It's it's true. We have to uh, recognize that everybody, you know, wants a, a safe 
to be healthy, to be free, to have their kids well-schooled, and, uh, and to have the planet. And one of the things that didn't exist, or at least wasn't aware in FDR's time with regard to the common good, is uh, the climate crisis. You know, if if we just let the private uh, interest take care of that, we're doomed. Well, here we are. You know, so one thing I think it's important to remember: companies do, corporations do one thing; they sell things. Yes. Okay, so that's that. So, what do they care about? I mean, what do they measure? And what do they care about? They care about volume, how many they sell. They care about how much it costs to make it. They care about uh, profit margin, you know, in, uh, you know, returns, and they care about market share, right? So those are the things they they measure. And so you're an oil company. What do we expect? They sell oil, and the more and the and and the more they sell, the better for them. Which is, of course, why you need rules and regulations and all that, because their selling oil hurts us. You know, private prisons, they sell heads and beds. They want more heads and beds. We want less. So it's really just our interests are different. I don't blame them for doing what they, you know, what they're organized to do. You know, they're not going to, um, but it's, you know, but it hurts us. It's, you know, I don't care <laughs> about what they what they want to do if it hurts us. And it is, and it is hurting us for sure. And we, we just ignored that for so long because it's so much easier just to let the privates run everything. Gore Vidal said, and maybe others said before him, I don't know. He said that in America we have socialism for the richest, free market for everyone else. The private interests have sway over the government, which, of course, serves them very nicely. That's the socialism for the richest. It seems the push for privatization is a direct reaction to the laws made to ensure the common good of a century ago. The public tends to buy into the specter of government-run economy as being dangerous socialism. Your thoughts on where we are on all this? Um, you know, I think you know, our, our, our idea in political environment is so topsy-turvy and, and, you know, and the result of uh, you know, years of uh, attack on government and, uh, you know, elevation of the free market. Um, I, I, you know, the, the paradox that we're in, of course, is that, you know, people want the same things, you know, most people. They want safety, they want security, they yes. want, you know, they want a place to live and all that. And the ways to do that, you know, when you do public, you know, opinion polls and look at the features, like even just taking the features of the Build Back Better bill, yeah. Um, it, uh, people, you know, people have strong support, but the but so on the so it's um, the programs are popular. Uh, the ideas have been poisoned, yeah. right? Yeah. So government bad, free right. market good. Although I think even the, right now the free market is not universally good. You know, seen as that way. Um, but you know, business is efficient. Business is good. Government bad. Um, so I think we, we have this challenge of people are, for, well, you know, other people say this too, programmatically liberal, ideologically conservative. Regulations. If you talk about regulations in the abstract, I don't like that. Right. You talk about right. making food safe, I like that. So I think that's, um, you know, our, that's one of our core problems is that we've got to work on the idea part as well. 
you know, that we've got to work on. Yeah, there's certain things we can only do if we can do them together, and government's our instrument. And yeah, we got to make it better all the time. If it's not as good as it needs to be, it's got to be better. But it's the only way we get these things done. Um, and like you know, like we were just talking about, and free markets and private enterprise, it's you know they got different interests. So I think we've got to get to that place where those things are at the ideological level. And I don't mean you know in a sophisticated way, but right. sort of in, a, right. in popular beliefs. I think that's crucial. Socialism is just you know, it's a, and you know ridiculous like a conversation because no one's really having a conversation about socialism in this country um it's just you know it's socialism it's critical race theory right you know whatever right. the you know the, whatever the brand of the month is for the for the for the right wing and it seems to work it's easier than thinking and of, of course one of the uh, more modern issues being affected by privatization was the uh, covid situation. Trump's coronavirus response coordinator, Deborah Birx, promised that the administration was, quote, centered fully on unleashing the power of the private sector, end of quote, to tackle the pandemic. How, how, do, do you think people react to that? Do they get that privatization did not serve us in the COVID? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe people aren't even thinking about privatization and, and how COVID uh, react, you know, mixed with that. Well, I think it's, I mean, this is, it's a crisis and everybody's responding and lots of anxiety. So I would say a couple of things. Do they think about it as privatization? No, because it's, but do they think about it as the power of the pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, that's very uh-huh. much in the mix, uh-huh. right? And listen, we needed the pharmaceutical companies to make the stuff, right? Absolutely. Now, to, to invent, to come up with the vaccine, you know, massive, it would be helpful to have in the conversation there was massive public investment and involvement in that. All the way back, you know, in, with, the, with Clinton's investment in basic science in the Human Genome Project, because the technology that came out that got created to sequence the, the genome was now is now common technology and that's how they sequence this genome so quickly and how they're sequencing the variants so quickly because of public investment in basic science now there was also public investment in the actual and and science and you know involvement of science public scientists in you know the development of these vaccines you know with moderna we gave them a grant with pfizer they got a pre-buy agreement so we paid for it now but the problem here is you know they own the patents now Patents, they're not all bad, not all good. I mean, it makes sense. They invest a whole lot of money in inventing something. They should be able to recoup their costs. Right. But for a certain amount of time, not forever, uh-huh. number one. And when there's a public crisis like this you know, right now is the government does have the power to suspend those, those patents and should have. So that's making sure that, you know they have power. They have the power over our health in such profound ways. So... I, you know, I mean, the other thing about just in terms of Trump's initial response and what Deborah Burke said is, you know, here's what happened at the beginning. The beginning of uh, COVID is, all right, let the free market do it. And, mm-hmm. and, and states mm-hmm. are fighting against states to get, you know, to buy PPE and te- COVID tests. And it was insane. Um, you know, you remember former Governor Cuomo in New York, you know, doing a nightly uh you know, video cast where he was, you know, complaining about this and very articulate about it. And he yep. was really right. It's insane. Ultimately, what happened is, up, you know, it was clearly a failure and Operation Warp Street got put together. 
And then there was government coordination, and things started to move in the right direction. So, you know, the free market just can't do that. You've got to have everybody healthy. You've got to coordinate. You know, it was a war. I, I would hope that, I, I would hope that by, now, by now the public realizes that, uh, hey, government involvement um, helped a lot. It did a lot of good for us. And you talk about somebody, some private interest in inventing something and making a lot of money from it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I want to, of course, eventually talk about how, you know, the private profit motive ain't bad. It's not like either one or the other. You can have both. But you cite the, the, the Internet, you know, was, was developed, and now everybody is dependent on it. And you give an example of Tennessee where telecom giants pushed for a law that blocked the public effort to collectively provide what such corporations wouldn't. Tell us about that, please, and about the Internet, perhaps, now, as yeah, common good. No, absolutely. That's a great question. So, I mean, what, first thing, the Internet is now clearly an essential uh, part of making it through life. I mean, absolutely. You know, for commerce, for education, for health, all the telehealth happening, for it, it's, it's as, as a, an essential piece of our infrastructure as a road. It's just as the interstate highway, no question about that. So, um, you know, and that's been developing, you know, what in our lifetime, you know, the last twenty years, say. So, um, you could have, you know, mo most of us have private access to the internet, Comcast or Spectrum or, or what have you. So, there are some municipalities that wanted to do it themselves, have public, you know, municipal broadband, and it could make do it cheaper. In yeah. Places yeah. do it free, have affordability schemes for people at different levels. And so Chattanooga had done that, and you know what people say is it's you know the fastest you know internet in the country. I don't know if that's still true, but really good internet system. They wanted to expand, or or actually, their people who lived outside of Chattanooga but nearby wanted to get access to it. And the uh -huh. city of Chattanooga uh -huh. was thinking, you know, saying, well, why don't we just expand it? The reaction of the private companies was to prevent that from happening pass laws to prevent um, the, the, the expansion or the extent into other serve you know into other regions of public internet of, uh, of excuse me of municipal internet you know it's obvious market share you know you know nose under the camel's tent if the people think that the public can do it cheaper better faster and you know um, oh my god what does that mean for Comcast or you know the large companies so and it's not the only place that happened you know, Colorado, the telecoms passed a similar law in Colorado. And what's interesting about that is they, they had a little kind of loophole for us um, to say, well, you know, if the people want it, and, uh, then the, a city can vote to remove, you know, to, to do it, to remove the restriction. And <laughs> I think virtually every time a city has voted in, in Colorado to, um, uh, you know, to do municipal broadband, Broadband instead, it's passed overwhelmingly. Yeah, it's so, yeah, it's, it's not without hope. Not that's without for sure. Uh, it's not. And, and, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you go. Well, I was just going to tell a, a little story. All life, of course, depends on water. And when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, as a minority of Democrats, I assure you, I was really amazed when it was Republicans who sponsored and led the way and passed a bill to municipalize what had been a costly, inefficient water utility, private water utility that nobody liked. And 
I just, I think that's really uh, an interesting thing that, that here's people normally who don't agree with, with liberals like me uh, taking the lead for municipalization. What about that, the appeal of that? Do you, I mean, we want to talk about some degree of hope as we come toward yeah, well, the end of no, there, there are lots of free municipalizations around the country. And so at some level, when there are people who, you know, whether conservative or liberal, but where they just want to run their government well, and they look at facts and the numbers and all of that. It, you know, they'll do the right thing. I mean, they'll. I mean, let's, if they'll bring it in, and it happened in lots and lots of places. Um, and so that's kind of when we get to the other way to think about this is there's no business in America, you know, well-run business in America that would do what we do to outsource stuff that are essential for outsource it and not monitor it and oversee it and all of that. You know, contract for something. So. There's a lot of examples of uh, reasons to have hope. Remunicipalization of water is one of the examples. Uh We're involved, organizationally, we're involved in lots of, you know, providing information and research and support to lots of efforts around the country that where there's a a privatization proposal and it is rejected for these very reasons. They want control over it. They don't drink the Kool-Aid, that it's cheaper, better, faster. So um, there's plenty of examples. And, and as a recovering politician, I'm not running for anything in the foreseeable future, I've often said that what we need is more democracy, not less. We, the people, need to proactively create mechanisms and processes that involve the public in making these extremely important decisions. You talked about a little bit of that. What, what more can people be doing on, on that uh, uh, lane? Well, I think, you know, it's important for people to be part of something, you know, on their own, you know, I mean, part of their local community group or their political party or whatever it is, you've got to do things together, right? So that's, that's, you know, that's important. Um, That's about organizing. That's about, you know, being part of a union or being part of a, you know, civic organization that's engaged. Um, So I think that's, that's super important. Um, I, I think, and you know, in, at the, in the book, maybe what you're referring to is, I think there's there's some things that, that we have to get into our head first, Such also, as? right? Okay. And okay. So one of the things is to realize that you know everything we've been talking about, public goods, we should be able to decide what they are, and we have to pay for them. You know, it's pretty simple because you know all this no new taxes. I mean, because taxes becomes a you know essential part of every one of these debates, is that we have to pay for it, whether it's private or public. And when that when a private comes in and they say no new taxes, they're they're not lying because they're just going to turn it into a fee that we pay individually because there's only one place the money comes from us. Period. There's no other source of money in the world but us. Um, but the other thing that I think it's important to do is I, I refer to it in the book as surface the state. The government is all around us every day wherever you sit. The paint on our wall used to have lead in it, mm-hmm. you know. But but for government action. You turn on the faucet, the water comes out. I mean, so it's really both, you, what I to say is it's ubiquitous and invisible at the same time. Mm. Mm. So, and if we don't know, if we don't understand what's all, the, the, the government and the public all around us, it's sort of easy to get cynical about it. And, and it's easy not to then say when it's wrong, when there's something that needs to be improved, that it's ours together to fix it, you know, so it puts us together. Um, the, the, um, the, the the other thing, though, the, the second step of that, though, is to realize what the public purpose of those things are, right? Mm. Mm. You know, roads are about mobility. 
we need to be able to move in society, right? We need to be able to get places. Things need to be able to get to market and to, you know, into goods. Um, healthcare is about the health of the nation. And education about a child is about an educated country, right? So there's public purpose to all these things that it's really important for us to keep in mind so that we're always heading for when we're you know, advocating and we're organizing, we're saying, here's what we want. We want a healthy nation, number one. Number two is we only get it, and we understand this now from COVID, we only are healthy as a nation if we're each healthy. Uh-huh. It's not uh-huh. just about your health. Right? <laughs> we're only an educated nation if every kid's health, they are educated, regardless of whether it's someone from your family. So that's where we have to sort of get into our heads and our value, you know, sort of put our values out front. And then we need to organize and make those things happen. And it's not that this is against the free market. It's not against capitalism. The two can uh, work nicely together, yes? Not at all. I mean, listen, everything is, I mean, even the stuff I just said, um, the faucet, you know, I went to Home Depot to buy my faucet. (laughs) By the water there, the paint is from somewhere else. The roads are built by private contractors. Um, public and private is pretty much in everything. Yes. Again, that's why I go back. And so, absolutely. And food, we go buy it at the grocery store. It's okay. <laughs> you know, it's a commodity. We buy it. We want the public to make sure it's healthy. Yes. And there's standards. Um, but I think it's, you know, so it's not about, you know, it's sort of a false choice. Right. Versus private. right. right. Again, the issue for me goes back to who's in charge. Well, it'd be nice to have the people in charge. charge. The coming exactly, and and on the stuff that matters to us, on the on our iPhones, you know, you know, I mean, there's things for us to be in charge over, whether they're healthy, whether they're built with slave labor, or or what, you know, have toxics in them, whatever. But you know, know, the government doesn't just need to decide what kind of TV I have. They just need to make sure it's you know we don't. It's not going to blow up. Plug it in. <laughs> it's true. It does work nicely together. The new book is The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Our guest has been its co-author, Don Cohen. Thanks much. Very uh, hopeful. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It was great to interview. Thank you. All the men come in these places And the men are all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You don't think of them as human You don't think of them at all You keep your mind on the money Keeping your eyes on the wall I'm your private dancer A dancer for money Do what you want me to do I'm your private dancer A dancer for money And any old music will do I want to make a million dollars I want to live out Have a husband and some children Yeah, I guess I want a family All the men come in these places And the men are all the same 